I'm Ryan. If you're not, haven't been around much, I'm not the guy who's usually standing here. Um, Jared is out of town this week, so I get this awesome privilege to look at this incredible scripture, um, and hopefully um, together we can understand something from it uh, and grow. But I want to pray for us before we get into it, so will you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful for your word. We praise you for it guides us, it directs us, and it teaches us. Lord, help us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. May we learn better how to do that as we study your word together. In Jesus' name. Do you want to please God? Yeah, yeah, you can answer. It's okay. You don't have to be quiet. You do, I'm sure, right? I I mean, like, even if you aren't a believer in here, if I say, do you want to please God? Most people would say, yeah, I want to please God. Maybe I don't know if he exists, I'm not sure what, he, what kind of God you're talking about, but I want to please him. It's very natural as a person to have this desire to please God. And as believers, I'm sure that if I said, okay, what's it look like to please God? You would say, well, uh, you can learn how to please God by reading your Bible, right? You could tell me, hey, here's some scriptures, go look here, this is what pleasing God looks like. That's great. But when we read the Bible, here's the problem. There's a lot of verses that talk about pleasing God, a bunch of them. And so we could really quickly turn into little Pharisees who have this wonderful little rule book. Maybe it's about this thick. And we could say, okay, here are all the rules. This is what you need to do to please God. We could do that. Here's how you can make God happy. But if you remember, Jesus made it really clear how he felt about that. Right? When he interacted with the Pharisees, he had a few choice words for them. He called them hypocrites. He called them vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs, among many other colorful (laughs) terms. Jesus wasn't thrilled with people just like making up rules and keeping the rules. Their hypocrisy was not what he was after. But in Colossians, in this chapter we're looking at this morning, Paul gives us a glimpse into what he prays for his fellow believers. And in seeing that, what we're going to see is this big picture of what it looks like to live a life that's pleasing to God. And I want you to see that it's far from a rule book. It's far from a list of things that you have to do to make him happy with you. In fact, what Paul does here is he encourages these believers that God's work in them is the very instrument that enables them to live a life that's pleasing to him. And so, here's here's what I want you to hear, okay? What is a life that is pleasing to God? Well, according to Colossians, according to what Paul says right here, here's what a life that is pleasing to God is. If you're taking notes, this is the thing you write down, okay? A life that is pleasing to God is one. It's a life that is taught by God, and so it abounds in wisdom and good works. Taught by God and then abounding in wisdom and good works. Two, it's a life that is empowered by God and then it joyfully and patiently endures all things. So empowered to endure. And it's a life that is, three, radically changed by God and so it overflows with thanksgiving. So let's dive into the text together. You ready? Let's look at verse 9. I hope you have your Bibles. Look there. Look at verse 9. It says, and so, okay, hold on. Got to stop. First two words. (laughs) 
the prayer of Paul that we're looking at here is the result of something, okay? So we have to kind of remember back, what did we see last week? He, Paul has heard about these Colossian believers from this guy named Epaphras who brought the gospel to them. They received it with joy and thanksgiving. They are abounding. You remember last week, they're abounding in faith, love, and hope, right? They're growing. The gospel is working in them. It's bearing fruit in their lives. And so when Paul starts this new section here with, and so, he's saying, my earnest prayer for you Colossians is this, and I'm praying it because I know that you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. He's praying for them knowing that they've been changed by and are growing in the gospel. Also, notice this. What does he say? And from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's a constant prayer. The constant nature of his prayer is really important. Now, I don't know. I I doubt that Paul had literally been praying for these people every second since he heard about them, right? That's That's not the point. So don't get caught up in this, well, golly. You know, in that one verse in 1 Thessalonians, it says, pray without ceasing. I don't know how I'm going to get anything done. That's not what we're talking. There's a regular nature of prayer. I'm sure you guys have probably um, heard of people who are real prayers. Maybe you've known people who are real prayers. They have like a journal or a prayer wall or something. And like they have this habitual practice of just really like being a prayerful people. That's the point. That kind of lifestyle is what we're talking about. He didn't just hear about these people, offer up a quick, oh, thank you, Lord, for them, and then go on about his life never thinking of them again. There's a regular remembrance of these believers and a regular prayerfulness for them. And that's an example for us. Paul is a great example in prayerfulness. There's a myriad of people groups out there. There's missionary families, there are ministers, there are friends, family, whatever, and they need our unceasing prayer. So we should be prayerful for them all the time, regularly. And as a whole, I would think you would agree with me, like modern Christians have a really poor prayer life. I mean, really and truly, we're just too busy to take time to pray. That's, that takes time. I don't have time for that, much less to pray without ceasing like Paul tells me to. But the Christian life is a life of prayer. It should be a life of regular prayer. It's, it's, it's a life of, of all kinds of prayer. Like there's worshipful prayer, there's intercessory prayer where you're praying for other people, there's confessional prayer, we did that this morning where we're praying, confessing our sins, there's prayers of thanksgiving, we ought to be thanking God for what he's done, there's prayers of supplication or asking God for things. And this is just the regular pattern of the life of a believer is to be a life of prayer, should be. I hope that we'll be a praying church. And also... This is big. I don't know, if you just listened, whenever Lanny was reading that, I hope you heard it. This is a really big prayer. He's praying, like, not just little things for these people. He's not just praying that, like, I hope you guys will get better at reading your Bibles. I really hope you guys will, you know, get better at, like, going and taking food to those people down the street who need it. That's That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these big, overarching concepts, these wide themes When Paul prays, he prays big. Just look at his other prayers in in other books, other letters. I mean, these are big prayers. They're not prayers for like the guy whose back is hurting. It's not praying for, um, you know, that family who's struggling with how to raise their kids. I'm sure Paul prayed those prayers all the time. That's not the kind of prayer he's giving us here. This is a prayer like that's concerned with the whole life and practice of a whole group of believers. 
He's talking about this church, this group. It's a, it's a corporate prayer. He's praying for them as a whole. And this is crazy. By telling them what he's praying for them, he's actually encouraging them to do it. You see that? But he's not praying to them. We have to be like, be careful. This isn't instructional. This section of Scripture, Paul never once says, this is what you need to do. He says, I'm praying that God will do this in you. He's praying to God for these believers, and he's just letting them know, here's what my prayer looks like. And when you know that, then you have an idea of what it looks like to walk in it. He knows that what he's praying for them to do, God will work in them. It's like he really believes what he said in Ephesians. Remember Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He prays a big prayer, but he's praying to a much bigger God. And so he knows that God can work this in his people. I hope you know that about your God, that when you pray, you can pray big things, knowing that God is the one who's working in you. So what's he praying for? Let's look at the rest of verse 9. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what's he praying for? He's praying that as a whole, that this group of believers at Colossae will know God better, and so they'll grow in wisdom and understanding. And there are just a few things that we need to think about about this petition. So he's, he's asking God, God help them grow in knowledge and abound in wisdom. What's that look like? Okay, first, notice that this is a passive voice verb. Now, you're not all English nerds like me, so you may not know what I'm talking about. He's not asking them to fill themselves. He didn't say, now fill yourselves with the knowledge of the Lord. No, what's he say? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. God is the one who does the filling. True knowledge of God can only come from God. He has to reveal himself. Now, he's done that in his word through Jesus. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago, God spoke to us through, our, through the prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the revelation of God. And so he has told us, He's revealed his will to us. But does that exempt us from, like, seeking out a greater knowledge of God? Not at all. In fact, it gives us the confidence that we will actually grow when we seek out knowledge. So when we read and study God's word, it's not as if we're, like, uh, we're taking over God's work of filling us. It's like, no, 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 God, I don't want you to fill me. I'm going to fill myself. Right? No, we're actually like participating in these means that God has ordained, that God has made for us to grow in knowledge. We're just being part of it. What a gift that is, that he lets us be part of it. He's filling us through our ingestion. So kids, think about this. When your mom makes you some food, it fills you up, right? Maybe if it's good. For my kids... A big bowl of mac and cheese, boy, they'll eat the whole thing. They'll be filled up. Okay, so when you're filled up, did your mom fill you? Yeah, she did. But she didn't, like, just do it. You had to, like, pick up a fork and put it in your mouth. 
and chew it up and swallow it. You would still say, yeah, mom filled me up with food, with good food. But you were part of that. That's what God does. He's, he's filling us with his knowledge. And his word is the means by which we do that. Second, notice this. What kind of knowledge is he praying for them to have? He says, I want you to have knowledge of God's will. This isn't just like general information. He doesn't want them to be good at Jeopardy. That's not what he's after. He's not saying like, just have some stuff in your brain. He's saying this is knowledge of God's will. What does that mean? What is God's will? Well, I think in this case, and as Paul talks about God's will throughout Scripture, he's talking about the will of God revealed in Jesus. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about living in light of the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. What is God's will for us, right? That we be holy and blameless, that we abound with thanksgiving, and pray without ceasing. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He wants them to know what the will of God for them as a church is, as the body of Christ. This is a universal church. I think that when we're reading these, these letters, we're recognizing that, for one, this is written to a specific people, but it's also like for us too. God's preserved it so that we can know it too. But this is, this is not individualistic. He's not saying that I want just you, this one person, he's talking about the group of them as a whole. One author, this guy uh, named Mark Maynell, pointed out that Paul often talks about, in fact, usually talks about the will of God in like more kind of big picture terms, in universal terms. He doesn't really talk about it as the will of God for your life, like this kind of, what am I supposed to do with my life sort of thing. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the will of God as a church to go forth and proclaim the gospel and to live it out in this world. That's, that's the kind of will that we're talking about here. So don't think like, well, I need to figure out God's will. He says, I need to, no, that's not, we're not talking about where you're supposed to work or how many kids you're supposed to have. It's way bigger than that, way bigger than that. Knowing the will of God and living it out is a community activity. Not supposed to do it alone. Third thing I want you to notice about this knowledge He's not only praying for them to have knowledge, but also wisdom and understanding. Now, what's the difference? Okay, for those of you who know about classical education, you've got a primer on this already. You know what I'm about to say. Okay, there's these three stages of of understanding or of wisdom, of learning, maybe you could say. There's knowledge, which is this first. You can think of it like a pyramid, right? The first stage is knowledge. All of this pool of information that you know. And on top of that, we say, okay, now I have understanding which means I'm taking this knowledge and I'm seeing how it connects together. I'm understanding what the point of having that knowledge is. And then at the very top is wisdom, and that's where I'm saying I have this knowledge, I see how it works, and then I'm living something out because of it. It changes the way that I actually live. Maybe if you're thinking of it in terms of like math, it would be like knowledge is multiplication tables, uh, understanding is doing algebra, and then wisdom is putting a rocket on the moon. See, you're, you're applying it in wisdom. And this is spiritual wisdom. In the same way that this isn't just like uh, general knowledge, it's not just general wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world, as Paul talks about in Corinthians. He's talking about spiritual wisdom, not like humanistic philosophy. So Paul's prayer is that they not just know God, 
but understand how the gospel is affecting all areas of their lives and be able to like wisely live in light of that knowledge. Now let's look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Okay, so what's the purpose? What, why do we get this knowledge and wisdom? What's the point of it? To walk in a way that pleases God. That's what he says. Paul is praying that they're filled up with knowledge of God's will, grow in wisdom, and that they will live in light of that. I mean, you've probably heard the phrase that, that wisdom is knowledge in action, right? So he's praying that as they grow in wisdom, they'll walk in wisdom. It pleases God for us to walk in the wisdom with which he's filled us. Now, okay, I'm going to do another English teacher thing, okay? In the Greek, of course, this isn't here. But in the English, most of us anyway have, If I'm, I'm looking at the ESV. I don't know what you're seeing. But, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, colon. You see that? Okay. A colon, if you know, most of the time when you're looking at, at, at English language, a colon says, here comes a list. And so when I'm looking at this, I see, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, colon, that tells me, hey, I'm about to tell you what it looks like to walk in a manner that's fully pleasing to him. Here comes a list of things that are pleasing to God. And that's exactly what we see. Paul gives us a list here. And it's a, it's a neat little list. Um, it's for, I know, okay, it's for participles. There I am being an English teacher again. Uh, it's for ing words, for ing words, okay? So four words that end in ing that tell us what it looks like for us to walk in a manner that pleases God. All right, I'm going to read the section. I want you to listen for the ing's, okay? Read along with me if you can. Here we go. Bearing fruit in every good work and word. Sorry, every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power, according, according doesn't count, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Did you hear all four of them? Let's look at the first one. Bearing fruit in every good work. So the first ING is bearing fruit. So what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him? Do good works. Now, this is a really difficult thing for us to grasp. Or it must be a difficult thing for us as believers to grasp because we've wrestled with this idea and struggled to get it right for centuries. We don't do good works to earn God's forgiveness. We don't do good works to earn God's favor, right? We know that. We recognize it's grace. But we still try to do it. We still like think that we still like default to thinking that way. For some reason, I don't know why we do it. It's just like it must be just so ingrained in us to earn everything. Maybe it's the American thing. I don't know. We have to earn it, and we can't get our heads around the fact that God just actually did something out of the goodness of his heart and graciousness and mercy to us. It's like crazy for us to think, like, no, I have to earn it somehow. No, like doing good works doesn't earn this for you. It's overflowing from the fact that you have had this done to you. We, we do good works because we've received God's forgiveness and favor, not to earn them. So like you could say it this way. If we are true believers, we ought to be abounding in good works because God has already done the best work through Jesus. And that's changed us. And so the logical response is to like do good stuff. And when we do good things, it does please God. 
It's pleasing to him. It doesn't, like, make him give us what we want. It doesn't, like, make him finally forgive that one sin that's just been hanging there over us. But it does please him. And as a person who's been radically saved from your sin, from the penalty that's due for your sin, you've been saved by the grace of God. Why would you not want to please him? What a foolishness would it be for you to receive that kind of gift and not want to please the giver? Doing good works is just a natural response because your life has been transformed. Let's look at the second ing. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, you're thinking, hold on a second, Ryan. We already did the knowledge thing. That was back up there in verse 9. We already talked about increasing in knowledge. Why are we praying this again? That's a good point. You're making a very good point. But this is a really beautiful picture that Paul's painting. As we increase in the knowledge of God's will, as we increase in spiritual wisdom, we abound in good works. And guess what? As we abound in good works, we know God better. Mark Manel said it this way. There's a kind of virtuous circle at work here. Paul prays for the knowledge of God's will that brings God's wisdom, which itself leads to a worthy and pleasing life. But then, the more we live like that, the more we will actually get to know God better. We prove Him right, and so we trust Him more. Growing in good works, we know God better. It's a circle. So, the first two elements of living a life pleasing to God. Bearing fruit in good works, increasing in the knowledge of God. One more thing about that. This is creation language. When God created man and woman in the garden, he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. What did he say? He said, bear fruit and increase. That's what he told them to do. And Paul kind of already held up this mirror one time. Back in verse 6, he says this about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel. He says, it came to you and it's bearing fruit and increasing, both in the church at Colossae and throughout all the world. Douglas Moose says, God is seeking through response to the gospel to confirm his original purpose in creation and establish human beings in his own image. We were made in God's image, but at the fall, that got all messed up, right? We mangled the image. And then Jesus, the perfect image of God, comes and he fixes it. And now... His gospel is spreading all over the world, and it's changing people. It's transforming them. It's transforming them into the likeness of Christ, the perfect image of God. He's bringing us back to it through the gospel, through the power of the gospel. We're being transformed. God's fixing it. And he will ultimately fix it one day. It's going to be totally finished one day. All right, so life that pleases God, bearing fruit and good works, Increasing in knowledge. And then the third, ing, in verse 11, you see, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. All right, it's another one of those passive verbs. You're learning more than just Bible stuff this morning. Um, Passive verb because it's saying we are being strengthened. We're not strengthening ourselves. Just like God's the one who's able to fill us with knowledge and his will, he alone is able to strengthen us with his power. I can't do that for myself. Now, I could go to the gym, and I could make myself physically stronger. I'm not going to, but I could, okay? Um, Maybe I should. I don't know. But uh, some would tell me I should. 
but much like being filled with knowledge, being strengthened with God's power does actually involve me. Okay, So while it's the work of God, I'm part of it. God usually uses natural means to accomplish his will. So how does he strengthen us? Well, we come together and worship. We hear God's word preached. We read and study his word. We invest in relationship with other believers. We invest in community. We're encouraged by one another. We encourage one another. That, that's God strengthening us. We're just like doing these things because they're good for us, and God is strengthening us through them. And notice this. He's strengthening us with his power. And I don't, you may remember in Ephesians, God tells us what kind of power he's talking Like, what kind of power is this? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's like resurrecting power, life-giving power, sin-crushing power, world-changing power. That's the power that we're filled up with. That's the strength that he gives to us. So why? Why does he give us this strength? Why do we need this power in us? Why do we need God's glorious might? For endurance and patience. Endurance is that pushing through difficulty, and patience is waiting for the good. They come together most of the time, and we are strengthened for both of them. But in his empowering to endure, in his empowering to be patient, he grants something that I think is even more miraculous than those two things. What's the last bit of that verse? For all endurance and patience with joy. People can endure hard things. It's possible to endure hard things without God. It's possible to like patiently wait without God. You can do that. But only through like this empowering of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you could anyone endure difficulty patiently. With joy. This kind of empowering is why, like if you look at Romans chapter 5, what does Paul say? We rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> what? Knowing that our suffering produces endurance and our endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. This is why James can tell us Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Through God's power, we are strengthened to endure really difficult stuff patiently and with joy. That's powerfully wonderful stuff. So, living a life pleasing to God. You're bearing fruit in good works. You're increasing in knowledge. You're being strengthened to endure with joy. And then in verse 12, we see that fourth ing, giving thanks to the Father. A life that pleases God overflows with thanksgiving. Now, I want to make a distinction here. This isn't just gratitude. You can be thankful without giving thanks. Paul doesn't just say being thankful. He says giving thanks. It's active. It's vocal thanksgiving. This is pointing back to that prayer life we're talking about. You ought to be praying thanksgiving 
to God. And there's a direction, right? Give thanks to the Father. This isn't just generic, like, like generic, um, oh, yeah, I'm really thankful. You hear that all the time around, you know, November. It's like, oh, what are you thankful for? Thankful to who? Thankful to the Father, because He is the, the giver of all good gifts. So why do we overflow with thankfulness? Well, we see it right here. Paul gives us three actions that God has done which drive us to thanksgiving. First one, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay. This whole idea of inheritance is tough for us because, like in our modern world, we don't do it the same way. And so we have to think about it in these terms. The firstborn gets the inheritance, right? If you've read the Old Testament, you know how this works. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's also the firstborn from the dead. We're going to see that in the next section when we get to, to verses 15 through 20. Okay? Jesus is the firstborn, so he gets the inheritance. God's kingdom, God's rulership over everything, Jesus gets it because he is the firstborn. What happens when Jesus comes and dies and is resurrected is that he allows us to share in that inheritance. He inherits the kingdom of heaven, and we get it too. We didn't earn it. It's not an inheritance that I earned. I didn't qualify myself. You didn't qualify yourself to share in the inheritance. This is another passive verb. He qualified you. You're not qualifying yourself. We also didn't like pull a Jacob and trick God into giving us the inheritance. God in his mercy qualified us to share in this inheritance because he sent Jesus to redeem us. So solely through what Christ has done, we get to share in our older brother, get to share in his inheritance. And as Peter says, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's a good inheritance. It's a glorious home. This is the kind of inheritance that Abraham was waiting for. Remember in Hebrews where it talked about he was looking towards a heavenly city, not just this piece of land called Canaan. No, he was looking for something that was much bigger than that. And that's the inheritance we have. So our promised inheritance, that's one thing that should give us thanksgiving. But look at verse 13. It's not all. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. All right, so two more actions that God has taken which drive us to thanksgiving. He has delivered and he's transferred. Now, on their own, those terms sound very, I don't know, like you could almost, they, they're kind of academic, right? Like you receive a delivery and we transfer it to the warehouse. I don't know. It's just, that's immediately what I think of, just hearing those verbs by themselves. But in terms of biblical kind of understanding, deliverance is a huge thing. You remember this. And when we recognize the place from which we've been delivered and the place to which we've been transferred, we recognize that this isn't just like ordinary language. This is a really big deal. Think back to the history of Israel. Okay, if you read the Old Testament, Israel is delivered from Egypt. They're delivered from enemies that surround them in the Promised Land. They're delivered uh, by judges. They're delivered by kings. They cry out for deliverance whenever they're in exile or in captivity somewhere. 
The story of Israel is a story of deliverance. And the church's story is a story of deliverance. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were slaves to our sin, chained up in this kingdom of darkness, and Christ came to set us free. He delivered us. But he didn't just take us out of the bad place. That would have been awesome, right? But he delivered the children of Israel, and he didn't stop. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, right? But then he took them to the promised land. He took them to a new place. He transferred them to another home. Through Jesus, God has brought us from darkness into light, and then from this kingdom of sin and death, destruction, captivity, slavery, to a kingdom of his son. Look at the rest of the verse. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we've been brought into this kingdom of Jesus, right? We've been redeemed and forgiven. And you're going, well, those are kind of the same thing. Why does he say both of them? We'll talk about that in just a second. Redemption is a huge theme in the Bible. Okay, and we don't really understand. This is another one that we struggle to understand. You've probably heard preachers talk about it. Maybe you've read about it before. Um, but redemption, in, this, in these terms, is this idea of, of buying someone out of slavery. Um, when someone at this time period, when Paul's writing, when they heard the term redeem, they would have immediately thought about the slave market. That's just where you go. That's, where you're, that's what you're thinking about. Redemption in that context was the act of paying the price to ensure the freedom of a slave. That's what it was. That's what redemption was for them. You're redeemed out of slavery. Literally, redemption is being brought out of slavery. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He paid the price that we couldn't pay so that we could be free from slavery to sin and death. That's redemption, setting free. And then we have forgiveness in Jesus. We're prone to think of redemption and forgiveness as kind of the same thing. But when we're talking about this spiritual reality, they are very much linked, right? They're, they're, they're tied together. But I think Paul uses both of these terms here because he's pointing out two, two dis, disparate kind of points here. Forgiveness is essential because we weren't just like innocent people that were captured and made slaves. When Jesus came and redeemed us, he redeemed scoundrels. By purchasing us out of slavery to our sin, he gave us a new path, a new direction. But he also dealt with what we had done. He conquered our sin itself. Redemption secures our future, but forgiveness erases our past. Both are so important to understanding what Christ has done. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, a new way, and forgiveness. The past is gone. Okay, so let's step back for just a second. And think about all of this. This is a letter, right? It's a letter written by Paul to a certain group of believers in this little town called Colossae. And he's praying for them. 
He's telling them in this part, he's saying, I'm praying for you. And this is what I've been praying. I've been praying that you will live in a way that's pleasing to God. And by telling them what he's praying, he's encouraging them to live out this prayer. They're saying, oh, that's what he's been praying? Yeah, I I do want to do that. He's telling them what it looks like for them to live lives that please God. And I think that God in his wisdom has preserved this letter for us because he wants us to know what it looks like to live lives that are pleasing to him too. And as Paul's laying this out, what he's doing is he's showing that it's God's work in them that leads them to actions that are pleasing to God. And that's true for us as well. So God fills us with knowledge of his will so we wisely walk in a manner that's pleasing to him by doing good works, by growing in spiritual knowledge even more. God strengthens us with his power So we walk in a manner that's pleasing to him by doing good stuff, by patiently and joyfully enduring whatever this life might throw at us. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son who has redeemed us and forgiven us. And so what do we do? We overflow with thanksgiving. What else could you do? (laughs) If you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, the first step is to recognize what God's done and is doing in your life. He isn't asking you to please Him on your own. He isn't begging that you'll somehow summon up the ability to do it. He's working in you. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and enabling you and equipping you and transforming you into the image of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's working in you. So a life that's pleasing to God is a life that is taught by God and abounds with wisdom and good works. It's a life that is empowered by God and joyfully and patiently endures. And it's a life that is radically changed by God and overflows with thanksgiving. I hope that you will live a life pleasing to your King. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we are are humbled to think about what you've done. Lord, we long to please you. We do. We want to walk in a manner worthy of you. We want to live a life that pleases you. So, Lord, we know we need to be filled with your knowledge of your will. We need to be taught wisdom so that we can walk in it and abound in good works. We we long for your empowering. We know you have empowered us through your Holy Spirit so that we can endure so that we can have joy. We praise you that you've radically changed us and so we can overflow with thanksgiving for all that you've done. Help us. Help us walk in this way. For your glory, for your glory alone we pray it. And in Jesus' name, amen.